Matthew chapter 16. Today we're just going to start a new series, be a short one to take us to Mother's Day. And uh, one of the key ways to get people to think through, <clears throat> learn different ways, one of the key ways is, is really asking questions. Jesus was a master questionnaire as he challenged people with questions to think about him, him and their life. Him and what they, what, 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 he, what they were doing with their life, and then also the afterlife, what was going to happen. Now me, I, uh, one of the things, a difficult part of school for me was sitting in a classroom, and so I always sat toward the back or in the middle to kind of just to blend in, because I always had this constant fear after it happened a few times. I was always afraid the teacher would call on me, and I wouldn't know the answer, and I'd be really embarrassed. Or if they did call on me and I did know the answer, I couldn't get it out. You know how you kind of get lock brain and, and you just, you know, you know the answer, but it's, you're just, I just, I just couldn't take well on my feet. And, and so I never liked that. But Jesus, he puts people on the spot with questions. Jesus asked a number of questions. I believe it's 10 or 11, maybe 12, but, but somewhere in there, major questions during his time on earth and his ministry and challenged people with them. And so today, for the next few weeks, we're going to look at probably four of the major questions that Jesus addressed with people and made them think through his life. So today I get to talk about my favorite subject, Jesus, who he was and what he did in one of those questions. Because see, Jesus is the center of the Christian faith. We all know this. Some of the things I'm going to share today, you know. But it's a really it's a good primer. It's a great foundational thing that we never forget or take for granted what we know about Jesus and who he is. And maybe it's a good reminder of some things that we need to be sharing about him wherever we live and wherever we go. But we know this, that he is the God-man who came to save us. That's why we like to say here, it's all about Jesus. Jesus is the person. Now, there's a study in theology called Christology. It's, it's really the idea of studying about Christ. And it's usually divided up into two parts, who Jesus is and the work that he did. So I'm kind of dividing my talk up into those two areas today. And we're going to just kind of do a flyby. It's not, in, it's not exhaustive, it's not intensive, but it's a good reminder for a lot of us as we address this first question. So in Matthew chapter 16, we're going to pick it up at verse 13. Now it says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. Now Caesarea Philippi would have been located north of the Sea of Galilee. In your Bibles, if you carry a Bible, you'll see maps in the back and you'll see uh, Jesus spent a good amount of time in Caesarea. Now at the base of Caesarea, there is this, or in Caesarea, there is the base of this mountain called Mount Hermon. And this place was long associated with idol worship. If you remember the picture I showed you last week where we went in, we prayed for this family, and right in the middle of their home area in the back of their yard was this Rastafarian uh, shrine and kind of almost like a little house temple where people worshiped. Well, that's what's happening here. Jesus is bringing them to Caesarea Philippi. It was well known as a site of pagan worship. And they had this Mount Hermon, which was really this massive stone facade where at the base of it, people would worship their pagan idols and, and the pagan deities of the day. So it's interesting that as Jesus is moving through his ministry, he brings his disciples to this place, this center of pagan culture. 
and he's going to ask him this pointed, pointed, powerful question. He comes to them and he says, he asks them two questions on this occasion. He says, who do people say that the son of man is? He's talking about himself. He said, who do people say that I am? Well, the disciples respond, well, you know, they, they say, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others are saying that, you know, you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But this is one of those big buts in the Bible, verse 15. But you, Jesus responds, who do you say that I am? Well, Simon Peter answers, you are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. When I was at school, I never got it right. This is a ding, ding, ding answer, man. This is like, this is the, the, the best answer he could give. And Jesus responds, Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed because flesh and blood do not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. And I also say to you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So you see that it's in the backdrop here. You have the Mount Hermon. And so Jesus is kind of doing a play on words, and he's saying, you know what, in the midst of this, that's a big rock, but here's the bigger rock. I'm going to build my church, Peter, not on you, but on what you just said. Jesus, Yeshua, Messiah, the blessed one that comes from the Father and is given to us. He says, that's what I'm going to build my church on, that confession right there. And there's something about this where you have to understand, loved ones, that, that ultimately when we come to Jesus, it's because there's this revelation in our heart and our spirit. It isn't because we're so smart. It's not because we put two and two together, but it's because there's something of the spirit of God that's at work in us and we're responding to it. And so Jesus, then he goes on and he says, and I say to you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the forces of hell of Hades will not overpower it and I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven so Jesus now he's he's beginning to experience in his ministry he's beginning to experience great opposition with the religious leaders but his popularity with the people is growing and that chasm is the, the chasm between those two is because of both of those the more popular he becomes with the people the more the religious leaders want to do away with him so it's against this backdrop Jesus is calling out a renewed commitment of his followers you know what he's really doing here he's doing a gut check he's saying listen you've been following me but what you've got to understand now is tougher times are going to be coming. And I want to know where you line up. And probably just as importantly, you've got to figure out where you're going to line up as well. Because see, he's got a lot of people that are kind of the fringe, that are hanging out. They're fickle fans because as long as Jesus, as long as they can see a miracle, as long as they can see the wonder bread and the cold cuts being multiplied, they're good. But as soon as they don't see that, what do they do? They back off and they begin to remove themselves from the life of Jesus. And Jesus says, I want to know that you're committed to me for who I am, not just 
what I do. So he asked them this question, who do men say that I am? Well, their response is, well, you know, Jesus, word on the street is you're John the Baptist. Now, it's interesting, the three people that they say, John the Baptist, because he would have had a resurrector be reincarnated because he's, John the Baptist was killed. Now, you understand, we believe Jesus and John probably had a striking similarity, and their ministries were very similar because they both preached a repentance to enter into the kingdom of God, and they both did, you know, powerful things, and they came with a powerful message. And so some people were saying, maybe it's just John the Baptist, he's coming back. Some people said, well, maybe it's Elisha. Because Elisha did miracles and he spoke the truth and proclaimed the truth and did great things. Maybe he's Elisha coming back. There's a prophecy in the book of Malachi too where it talks about that Malachi would come in the end time to usher in the judgment of God. Well, Jesus didn't come to judge, he come to bring life. But then they said, well, maybe it's Jeremiah. I mean, Jeremiah, he was, a, he was a prophet and he spoke and nobody responded and people rejected him, but he had this great compassion for the people. And so people thought, well, maybe that's Jeremiah coming back. I mean, if God's God, he could do whatever. Isn't it interesting that all of the three that they mentioned, the word on the street is people that would have taken a manifestation, a miracle of God to bring him back. So there's something very powerful about the life of Jesus that transcends just simply being a man that almost validates this deity in him. So who is Jesus? Well, I want you to know this. Number one, he's the God-man. It's the central Christian, excuse me, the central question of Christianity in all of history. Jesus himself raises it with his disciples. And if you ask people today, the word on the street, what would people say? Well, here's a, here's a variety of answers that you'd probably get. If you went out on the street today, you'd probably hear one of these. If you said, who is Jesus to you? You'd hear he's a good man. He's a prophet. He's a radical revolutionary. He's the Messiah of Israel. He's just a man like any other man. Lived, said a few good things, died. He was a deluded religious leader. He was the savior. He was the son of God. He's the creator of all creation. Those are some of the things that you might hear today. But ultimately, this is the question that Jesus will get around to with everybody, including every one of us in this room. Who do you say that I am? And he says this, he says this and Peter speaks up and he gets the correct answer. He says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And that is the answers that Christ followers have now given for 2,000 years. See, there have been many good men, many prophets, many good teachers of morality, but Christ followers declare that Jesus is simply more than a good man. He's more than a prophet. He's more than a moral teacher. He's more than a human. We believe he is fully God. He is the God of all, the God of creation, the God of heaven and earth. He descended into this creation. He took on human form. That's the Christmas story. He became flesh. He became a man. He became incarnate. God came in the form of Jesus Christ. Now, yet we also believe that while he was fully God, he is fully man, the God-man. Now, this whole idea runs through the New Testament. Again, when we're talking about the study of Christology, obviously I cannot unpack this to its fullest. So I want to give you just a couple of examples, just a quick flyby on this. Because this idea is, is threaded and interwoven through the, from the Old Testament prophecies into the New Testament. But here's what it says in John 1.1. In the beginning was the word, the thought 
the expressed thought of God, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Genesis 1 in the Old Testament starts with this. In the beginning, God. And then John starts the Gospel of John with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So who is the Word? The Word is God. John 1.14, uh, John continues to kind of uh, unpack this. He says, the Word became flesh, that is God, and he made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, and he came full of grace and truth. So again, he reiterates this theme of the word, he becomes flesh, the word that was God becoming man. Paul wrote this in Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David. You can see the lineage. You can follow the genealogy in the gospel of Matthew that Jesus, as it was prophesied, became a descendant of the living king, David. And it says, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So hear this, Jesus had this human nature. He was a descendant of King David, but God demonstrated his power through the resurrection of him. Now that's what we celebrated last week, wasn't it? The resurrection. That's what, we, that's what Christians, Christ followers, have been celebrating for 2,000 years. Now you have to understand that in, in Jesus' time, this was difficult for those who were highly influenced by Grecian culture. See, the Greeks, and we talked about this before, especially this group called the Gnostics, which became a major heretical group and movement in the church in the first century, toward the end of the first century, called Gnosticism. It had to do with this higher thinking or this thinking above everybody else. But this thought, this Grecian thought, said this, that basically matter is essentially evil and the spirit is essentially good, which is totally antithetical to what we believe and what the scripture teaches. So the idea of God, pure and good, inhabiting matter, a body, pure and evil, was unthinkable. So because of this, a lot of people throughout the first few centuries had a really hard time bringing together, dovetailing this whole idea of this God taking on the manifestation and the physicality of a man. But the disciples knew better. They lived with Jesus. They listened to him. He, they, they touched him. They were touched by him. They saw him get tired and sleep. They saw him get hungry and eat. They saw him get thirsty and drink. Now, part of that Grecian thought, they said that Jesus just, that God probably caused Jesus just to appear as a man. So that literally, if he would have been walking on, this, on the sand of the seashore, there would have been no imprints. That's, 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 how, that's how they thought. It just it couldn't happen. But you see, the disciples were very clear. And you'll see this throughout the whole New Testament. And, and it became part of the, the major thrust and theme of 1 John, where it says, our eyes have seen him, our hands have beheld him, our ears have heard him. As John goes into the different modalities of the way of hearing Jesus, because they're saying he came as God, but he came fully enveloped 
as man. Uh, more on the Christology of Christ. If you read Philippians chapter 2, there's a word. It's about the emptying of himself. It's called the kenosis. Where Jesus, where he, it isn't that he emptied himself of his deity, but he kind of, it's almost as if he set him aside because he wanted to be the God man that came and experienced everything that we experienced through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit so that we could see how to live under that same presence and power of the Holy Spirit. So these disciples, they knew Jesus as the, the God man. Now, the phrase, Lord Jesus, appears 103 times in the New Testament. It doesn't count the hundreds of times where people are, are alluding to or referring to uh, him as the Lord. Now, the Lord is a word that uh, in, in, in the Jews' day, or in, in Jesus' day of the Jews, they basically reserved that word for God alone. Lord, God. But there was a secular Jewish historian his name was Josephus. And this is what he wrote. He says that the Jews refers to call Caesar Lord because that, was, that title was reserved for God alone. Yet the New Testament authors, most of whom were Jewish, freely used it of Jesus. And the early Christians, like the Jews before them, refused to call Caesar Lord because that title was reserved for God or Jesus alone. Jesus alone excuse me, Jesus is Lord, was the first creed, and it was the equivalent of saying, Jesus is God. That's a secular Jewish historian that wrote that. So for centuries, friends, Christians have insisted that Jesus is fully God, fully man. So where do we get this whole idea then that he's fully God? Well, first of all, his, his, his unique birth. Story is told in Matthew and Luke, and both make it very clear that, that, that Mary was a virgin and she was impregnated. The, there was the immaculate conception that come about because of the Holy Spirit of God that came upon her. And Matthew tells us that what will he be when he is born? He'll be Emmanuel, God with us, and he'll save his people from their sins, something that only God can do. Second, not only was his birth unique, but secondly, no one ever lived like Jesus without sin. Jesus asked his adversaries, his accusers, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? John eight forty six, and they couldn't. The author of Hebrews makes it very clear in Hebrews 4, verse 15, that Jesus was tempted in every way that we are, but was found Without sin, did not sin. Thirdly, his miracles. Jesus did things that only God can do. What did he do? Well, he healed the sick. He raised the dead. He multiplied food. He walked on water, stilled storms, fed the multitudes. I mean, he, he, he stilled the storm on Galilee. Followers asked, who is this? This isn't just a man. The conclusion is, this is God. This is God in the flesh. For Jesus' teaching was unique. In that day, rabbis would be quoting everybody, Rabbi Gamal and Rabbi so-and-so as they were teaching. Jesus came and his first major teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, what does he say? You've heard it said, but I say. And he began to speak of his own authority. And the most important parts of his teaching is what he said about himself. He made claims that no ordinary man or sane man would make. He said, I'm God. I come from God. Here's a couple of them. John 10, 30, he says this, I and the Father are one. Jesus declares that he and the Father are of the same ilk. 
And that's how Jews understood him. And that's why they begin to want to pick up rocks and kill him and to stone him because they considered that blasphemy. John 14, 9, Jesus is talking to his disciples in the upper room. He says, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Hebrews 1, 3 says that Jesus is the exact representation of the Father of God. So Philip asked Jesus to show them the Father. And this is his reply. Man, if you've seen me, Phil, you've seen the Father. I love how C.S. Lewis put it. He said, because of the claims that Jesus made, you have no option but to see him as one of three things. Lord of your life, a massive liar, or a lunatic. Because one of those has to be correct because nobody makes the claims of God of healing the multitudes, of forgiving the sins. That's a lunatic or a liar or the Lord. So also the fifth thing is his death. Jesus said that no one was going to take his life. He was giving his life as a ransom for many. He wasn't a martyr. A lot of people have been martyred. People have taken Jesus' life. I mean, excuse me, taken people's lives. They die. They give it up for a good cause. Jesus, his life wasn't taken from him. He says, I give up my life. I give up my spirit. I am doing the sacrificing for the sins of humanity. It's the ultimate act of love. Sixth thing is his resurrection that proves his deity. The ultimate proof that he was more than just a man was that death couldn't hold him down, the grave couldn't keep him, and the resurrected declared that he has the power to be the Son of God, the resurrected Lord. And seventh is simply the fulfillment of prophecy. Those of us who are familiar with the Old Testament, you understand this, that all those prophecies, everything of the Old Testament points to Jesus in the New Testament, everything. That's the focus of the Old Testament. Sometimes we forget about that. Someone did a, uh, a mathematical probability of what is the probability, possibility that one man could fulfill all of the Old Testament prophecies in one life? And the probability would be similar to this. Someone come up with this equation that it would be, there's so many zeros behind it, I couldn't even give you the number. But they said if you, took a, if you took the state of Texas and you filled it knee deep with quarters and then you threw one quarter in there that was painted, take a blindfolded person, have them walk in there and pick up that quarter. That is the probability that one man could fulfill all of the um, prophecies of the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled in his lifetime. So prophetic is a great, great witness to his Godhead. And see, the early Christ followers loved ones had to answer the question, who is Jesus? It's been a debated question. It was especially debated during the first four centuries. And again, that's why I say some of the writings of the, some of the epistles of the New Testament are written to combat some of the heresy that come about. But who Jesus was, if you read 1 John, you'll see that the litmus test of orthodoxy Christianity is that Jesus was the God-man. In other words, what they're saying is you can be wrong about a lot of things. You can't be wrong about this and be a Christ follower. That's kind of how we are at Creekside. 
We have a lot of room. A lot of you have come from different uh, church and spiritual backgrounds. We don't make every doctrine a major issue. But there are some. There's about seven of them. And this is one of them. That Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came in the flesh. So we've talked about this person. What did he do? What did he come to do? Well, here's the short, here's the bottom line answer. He came to save us. He came to save people. Luke 19 says that this is his mission. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. He come to find you and to find me and to seek out humanity and to bring them to himself to ultimately in some way, some form, ask you this question. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Paul said it, see, sometimes we think, and this is where the moral teaching comes in, and this is part of Christianity, but it is not the foundation. We forget, and sometimes I just need to remind you this. Jesus didn't come to make all of us bad people good. Primarily, he came for this reason, to make dead people, spiritually dead people, alive. And sometimes we get that inverted and we begin to think that we're Christians because we're just nicer. No, you're a Christian because you were dead in your sins. And Jesus came and he breathed new life in you. And you're born again. You're born from above. Paul said it this way. 1 Timothy 1.15. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I love what Paul adds there. He goes, of whom I am the worst. So Jesus comes to save sinners. And Paul, who wrote a third of the New Testament, he just kind of highlights this. And he says, I am the worst. I know some people that could probably give him a run for the money, you know. Uh, But but I I, I probably could in some ways. Because I'm a sinner. I used to say that probably more often when I first came here, that I'm not perfect, that I sin regularly, and, and I really meant it because it's, it's, it's true. But a person one time after service comes up to them after me and said they, they thanked me for their honesty, and, and I replied, well, haven't, you, haven't some of the other past pastors shared that and, and told you, you know, that they are too? And they go, oh, yeah, yeah, they have. They're wonderful men, but we, you're the first one we really believe. And I go, I don't know, I don't know what they meant by that, but... Uh, It sounds like a backhanded compliment. But I'm one of those. And here's the good news. So are you. And because of the love of God, that's why he came. Jesus came to save us sinners, the lost. Well, what does that mean? Well, we use the word save in a couple of ways. You know, one way we use it is to, uh, to, to put aside, to keep, to collect, to store up. The second idea between save is I'm going to save somebody. It means we're going to rescue them. We're going to pull them out of the water. Well, what Jesus did was when he came is he made a way. He says, you know what? I want to pull you out of the fires of hell. I want to save your life for the afterlife and eternity. The Bible says that we were lost and perishing, so Jesus had to come and to give his life for us. John 3.16, many of us know, but he says this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. 
And whosoever believes in him, clings to him, is what that idea is, will not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the gospel there, loved ones. That's why Jesus came. And sometimes we forget that one of our greatest assignments is to be a part of reaching people for Jesus. That we're now on that rescue mission. That our calling is to help people change their zip code from the zip code of hell to the zip code of heaven. It isn't just to have a nice, plush and lush, wonderful, pleasurable life here on this earth, but it's to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ who came to this earth to live among us to reach us. 2 Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you. He's not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God doesn't want anyone to perish. That's why Jesus came. The Bible uses several images to explain our condition in God's rescue. An image that is often used is from the court, is a courtroom scene. We've heard the word used, it's a theolo- another theological term called justification. It means just as though it never happened. That when Jesus comes into your life, you receive him, you respond to his relationship, to his calling you out. When you respond, and say, Jesus, not only do I want to receive you, but more importantly, I give my life to you. You're justified, just as though your past never happened. You're declared innocent. You're declared clean, free from guilt, free from the judgment and the wrath of God. Romans 3.23 says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says that for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. See, we've all sinned. Every person that is ever born lives under the penalty of death. And not just dying physically, but spiritual death. But Jesus says, no, no, no. I come to give you hope and to eradicate that. Romans 5, 9 says, since we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Christ died to pay our penalty and to justify us and to save us from that wrath that it's going to come someday. You go, oh boy, PT, whew. Hope last week, now we get to deal with this. Well, you know, sometimes we forget that our greatest hope is found, that we we get to move beyond the wrath of God. And it's somehow that that kind of blows some spiritual wind and slaps the slack out of our spiritual sails to never forget Those are the options. But we've been justified. It was 1935. Fiorello LaGuardia, he was the mayor of New York, and he showed up at night court in this poor borough of the city. Stepped in, replaced the judge, and told him to go home, and he took the bench. And that night, this old woman who just in tattered clothes and uh, unkept, she was brought before the judge and the bench for stealing a loaf of bread. Well, she defended herself by saying, listen, my daughter's husband has deserted her. She is sick and her children are starving, so that's why I stole this bread. Well, the shopkeeper stood up and refused. He said, no, no, listen, sir, you cannot drop these charges. It's a bad neighborhood, Your Honor. She's got to be punished here because this needs to be a lesson for everybody here and for our neighborhood. Well, LaGuardia sighed and tried to figure out what to do, and he 
turned to the old woman and he said, you know what, I've got to punish you. The law makes no exceptions. It's cut and dry. It's either $10 or 10 days in jail. And she bows her head and starts to cry. And while he's talking to her about the options, he reaches into his pocket. He takes out $10 and he throws it into the hat. And this is what he said. Here's the $10 fine, which I now remit. And furthermore, I'm going to fine everyone in the courtroom 50 cents for living in a town where a person has to steal bread so that her grandchildren cannot eat, so her grandchildren can eat. Mr. Bailiff, collect the fines and give them to the defendant. The following day, a New York newspaper reported $47 was turned over to a bewildered old grandmother who had stolen a loaf of bread to feed her starving children. Making forced donations were a red-faced storekeeper, several petty criminals, uh, 70 uh, petty criminals, and a few New York policemen. See, justice had to be served, grace had to be given. Mayor LaGuardia managed to do both. See, that's what God does for us, loved ones, for all who trust in Christ. We're perishing, we're deserving of death, of God's wrath, but it says, you know, Jesus came the God-man came to pay our fine so we could be justified, just as though it had never happened. So here we go. Today, who do you say that he is? Because this is the ultimate question. This is the foundational question that everybody has to answer concerning Jesus. Jesus brings each of us to that place, square one, It doesn't matter what the word is on the street. It doesn't matter what conventional wisdom says. This is what he's going to ask every one of us. Who do you say that I am? Charles Blondin was a famous tightrope walker, Frenchman. He visited America. Where he really made his mark in America is by crossing Niagara Falls a number of times on a tightrope. Took a small... He took a large cable, stretched it across, and a number of times over a few years went across there. And each time he got it a little more difficult. First time he walked across, and when he walked back, he put a, a blanket over his head so he couldn't see. It took him 23 minutes. Other times he would take a t- little table with a cup and a saucer, not spilling it back and forth. One of the times he grabbed a wheelbarrow and he turned to somebody and says, hey, do you believe I can get this across with, uh, with a heavy load in it? And everybody's, oh, yeah, you're the great blondine. Yeah, no problem. And so he turns to one of those guys and he says, why don't you jump in? Whoa, no, 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 not me. See, they'd seen him do everything over the course of time. They knew he could do it. But truthfully, the man didn't believe it or trust it with his own life. See, hear me, loved ones. You can intellectually believe correct theology about Jesus and still not be a genuine follower. You can believe that his claims, you can, you can agree and attest that he's supernatural and still miss a relationship with Jesus. Because ultimately, it's all about trust and aligning your life with his. And it's not so much about you receiving him, but it's about you giving your life and submitting to his life. I find it interesting that Jesus doesn't ask this question in a church service. He doesn't ask it when there's great music. 
He doesn't ask in where there's an emotional uproar or, or where there's just everybody's emotions are being touched. No, he asks it when their minds are fully engaged in the course of a pagan culture. With that as the backdrop, he says, I want to know, guys, it's a gut check time. Who do you say that I am? And I wonder if he isn't doing that to some of us today. Because it's so easy to say, oh, yes, you're the Lord, you're Jesus. Could you fill up my bank account? Could you get me a new car? Could you get me a bigger home? Could you heal me? And Jesus will say, that's nice, but that's not what I'm about. I'm not about your agenda. I'm about mine. I want to know if you're going to follow me. You know what I see? I see a lot of people, they'll follow Jesus or they'll come to Jesus when it's really hard. Man, they're faced with life and death or they need something. But if we're not careful, I see a lot of those people fall aside. Why? Pressure's off. Or Jesus didn't do what they wanted him to do. And we can never forget, loved ones, he's God. He's the king, not us. And he says, who do you say that I am? Okay, follow me.